فَإِنَّ الصَّفَا أَمَّا بَعْدَ أَعُوذُ بِاللَّهِ مِنَ الشَّيْطَانِ الرَّجِيمِ بِسْمِ اللَّهِ الرَّحْمَنِ الرَّحِيمِ قَدْ أَفْلَحَ مَنْ زَكَّاهَا وَقَدْ خَابَ مَنْ دَسَّاهَا سُبْحَانَ رَبِّكَ رَبِّ الْعِزَّةِ عَمَّا يَصِفُونَ وَسَلَامٌ عَلَى الْمُرْسَلِينَ وَالْحَمْدُ لِلَّهِ رَبِّ الْعَالَمِينَ اللَّهُمَّ صَلِّ عَلَى سَيِّدِنَا مُحَمَّدٍ وَعَلَى آلِ سَيِّدِنَا مُحَمَّدٍ وَبَارِكْ وَسَلَّمْ what I want to do today is give you a brief introduction to Tazkiyah and then I want you to openly ask whatever questions that you have. This is a very misunderstood discipline. It is oftentimes a very misrepresented discipline and therefore the gut reaction of many Muslims have, has been to pull back and to withdraw. And that may be understandable but I'm going to suggest to you that we're missing out on a very important legacy of the Deen of Islam along with Quran, Hadith, Fiqh, Aqidah and marriage, Tasawwuf and Tazkiyah are actually one of the most misunderstood uloom and what their usul are and what their uh, sciences are. Although I prefer to translate uloom as disciplines as opposed to sciences because it gives a mis- it's a misnomer to call actually uloom al-Islamiyah, the Islamic sciences because the English word science has been used for something else. And ulum al-Islamiyah means the Islamic disciplines of learning and understanding all of creation, be it scientific or non-scientific. Right? It's truly, actually, ulum is an epistemology. So what is the epistemology of spirituality in the deen of Islam? First of all, tazkiyah is a word that comes in Qur'an al-Kareem. In fact, in the Surah, Surah Al-Shams, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has said the most number of qasam, has invoked the most number of oaths in the entire Qur'an for Tazkiyah. وَالشَّمْسِ وَالْدُحَاهَا وَالْقَمْرِ إِذَا تَلَاهَا وَالنَّهَارِ إِذَا جَلَّاهَا وَالْلَيْلِ إِذَا يَكْشَاهَا وَالسَّمَاءِ وَمَا بَنَاهَا وَالْأَرْضِ وَمَا تَعَاهَا وَنَفْسٍ وَمَا سَوَّاهَا Seven qasams فَأَلْحَمَهَا فَجُورَهَا وَتَقْوَاهَا all of these seven oaths were taken by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that being we should never need to take even a single oath but for the sake of mu'mineen, part of the balagha of the Qur'an for taqid, after taking these seven oaths then he said in Qur'an kan aflaha man zakaha wa kan khaba man dasaha So this means indeed is successful, falah a person has attained felicity and bliss and success and happiness, that person who has done tazkiyah of their nafs. So it means that this is not something that is optional, something that is extra. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself is swearing seven times in Qur'an about the importance of this tazkiyah. In fact, in another ayah of the Qur'an, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes it clear that without this purification, there can be no success on the Day of Judgment. يَوْمَ لَا تَنْفَعُ مَالٌ وَلَا بَنُونَ إِلَّا مَنْ أَتَ اللَّهَ بِقَلْبٍ سَلِيمٍ يَوْمَ Prepare for that day, anticipate that day, be well aware and forewarned of that day. لَا يَنْفَعُ مَالٌ that none of your monetary wealth, your worldly possessions will be of any benefit to you. nor your sons, none of your worldly relations will be of any benefit to you. The only person who will be successful on that day, man atallaha biqalbin salim, that person who brings to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala a pure or purified heart. Now there are two aspects to this purification. One is dealt with what we call sharia and fiqh. And that is called the ability to leave outward sin. 
You see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in Quran, وَذَرُوا ظَاهِرُ الْإِثْمِ وَبَاطِنَا That you must leave all the sin that you do, both the outward sin and the inward sin. So what are the outer sins that's like lying, drinking alcohol, eating pork, etc.? You can find that in the books of fiqh and sharia. What are the inward sins? The inward sins means unlawful, misplaced, misguided lust. Unlawful, reactive anger, hostility, spice, malice, hatred for someone. Unlawful sin means greed and love for this world. Unlawful sin means envy, jealousy for others. Unlawful sin means vanity, conceit and pride, ujub, kibber and takabur in one's heart, etc. So these are the inner sins. How does a person leave those inner sins? That is called the discipline of learning known as tazgiyya. How can a person leave these inner sins? Another way we sometimes explain this, ayah of Qur'an, مَذَرُ الظَّاهِرَ الْإِثْمِ وَبَاطِنَا That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saying in Qur'an, leave the zahir of sin, stop doing sin. And leave the batin of sin, stop wanting sin. Stop yearning for sin. Stop craving sin. Stop thinking about sin. Stop fantasizing about sin. That requires a deep cleaning. And you have to do both. You have to do both. And if I were to give my own example, let's say I was to tell you that, Alhamdulillah, I've never committed murder. So I've stayed myself from doing that sin. Right? But if I told you, I'm always thinking about murder. I'm always dreaming about murder. I'm always craving to murder someone. I'm always yearning to murder someone. But Alhamdulillah, I didn't murder someone. Is that enough to get me off the hook? You'd look at me like I'm crazy. You'd say, what's the matter with you that you want this sin? What's the matter with you that you think about this sin? If I told you every Friday night I go on the internet and I look at scenes of murder, you'd say you're sick. You say it's a problem. It's not just enough that you don't do the sin. You've got to stop wanting the sin. Right? That's what Allah SWT is saying in Quran. Stop doing sin and stop wanting sin. Tizkiyah is that branch of learning of the deen of Islam that trains a person how to stop wanting sin. If a person can stop wanting sin, guaranteed they will stop doing sin. And if we want to play this flirtatious game that we want to keep wanting sin, keep thinking about sin, keep seeing sin, there's no way you'll be able to stop doing sin. So tizkiyah. It's one of the sunnas of Nabi Kareem. So it's part of his nabuwa. Allah SWT said in Quran Al-Kareem, لَكَدْ مَنَّ اللَّهُ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ That indeed Allah SWT sent His special grace and favor on the believers. إِذْ بَعَثَ فِيهِمْ رَسُولًا مِّنْ أَنفُسِهِمْ When He sent to them a messenger from their own selves, from humankind, لِيَتْلُوا عَلَيْهِمْ آيَاتِهِ To recite to them the verses وَيُزَكِّيهِمْ And to do their تَزْكِيَّةً وَيُعَلْنِهُمُ الْكِتَابَ وَالْحِكْمَةً And to teach them the book and the wisdom. So tazkiyah is a prophetic function and it will continue until the end of time. The Prophet said, Al-Ulama'u waratut anbiya that the scholars are the heirs of the Prophets. So there will be ulama of tilawat kitab they're called qurra, qari, mujawid, they know tajweed. They're going to be ulama of tazkiyah. That is called shaykh, murshid, awliya, siddiqeen, sadiqeen. They're going to be ulama of ilmul kitab. Those are the ulama mufassirun. And they're going to be ulama of ilmul hikmah. Those are the muhaddisin and fuqahab combined. So this is the background in Quran for what is tazkiyah. Now you move next to the prophetic model of tazkiyah. How did Nabiya Karim Sassam do this tazkiyah of sahaba? And I'm going to try to bring you up 
to a little bit of the history, and then I'll switch to the methods, and then we'll take your questions. Alright? So, theory of Tazkiyah and Quran, that is done. History of Tazkiyah, or theory of Tazkiyah in the Sunnah of Nabi Kareem Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Number one. Number one aspect is called Sohba. That is why the whole world, including the non-Muslim professors at our universities, call them Sahaba. They're companions of the Prophet ﷺ. So how did the Prophet do their tizkiyah? Through Sohba. Through Sohba. This is, by the way, the real reason why hadith were not written down. is because they're not meant to be written. They're meant to be lived. You see, if the Prophet ﷺ says in front of Abu Hayr, live in this world, be in this world, as if you're a stranger or a traveler on the path, Abu Hurairah is not going to write it down and come back to the Prophet that look, Ya Rasulullah, look, I got it. He'll tell him, give me that piece of paper. <laughs> Throw that piece of away. I want you to bring me that lived life that is lived according to this teaching. I want you to feel the feeling of the meaning and live that feeling. I don't want you to write the words. So Sahabi come a different understanding of Sunnah. That's why they didn't write it down. They lived it. They lived it. They were words to live by and die by. Alright? So, Nabi Karim Sosam did this tizkiyah by having them live with him. This is called suhbah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions this in Quran al-Kareem as a continuous model of tizkiyah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Quran, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanuttakullaha wa kunuma O you, a people who aspire to iman, Oh, you have begun the journey of Iman with your tongue and want to perfect it in your heart. Kunuma as you must join your very being with those who are truer to Allah SWT and the Messenger than you are. So, Sohbah, shown both as a prophetic practice and also as a Quranic injunction. Continue to the next generation, Tabin. Tabin also kept Sohbah. Who are Tabin? There are people who kept the Sohbah of the Sahaba. Who is the first Tabi? I want you to imagine who is that person. The first Tabi means a person who just missed Sayyidina Rasulullah So he heard that there was a Prophet and Messenger. Maybe he had some friends who had accepted Iman in the Prophet So he decides I'm going to go to Medina. And I'm going to take Iman in the last and final Prophet and Messenger. He arrives in Medina Manawra. And what does he find? He sees that everybody is extremely sad. That people are crying. He doesn't understand. So he goes up to one of them and he says that I've come from this, this village in the desert and I want to I want to meet that last and final prophet. So he said, oh, oh, don't ask us about him. He just passed away an hour ago from this world. That's how you become a Tabi. First Tabi, the person who just missed Sayyidina Rasulullah Sallallahu Akbar. Imagine. Now he's not going to go back home. <laughs> so he's going to ask him, well, who are you? He said, I'm Abu Huraira. I said, did you see him? He said, oh, don't ask me. <laughs> oh, did I see him? Did I ever see him? He says, okay, I missed him. I'm not going to let go of you. Right? Now you think Abu Hurairah is going to bring out his notebook and say, okay, here, <laughs> Shabash, <laughs> here's a notebook, go. No, he's going to say, you want, and this is by the way how the Sahaba became teachers. They never conceived themselves like this because they were the greatest students of the greatest teacher. They never thought they weren't prepared for this, but this role was thrust upon them when Tabi and first Tabi, second Tabi, one after the other, they started coming. And they realized what an immense amana they had 
what an immense trust and gift and blessing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala given them that they were sahib rasul or a woman came, right? A female tabia. And she met a sahabiyah. Hmm? A woman who had heard and listened to the Prophet So those women became teachers. They realized they were carrying something. So Abu Hurairah is not going to give him his notebook. He's going to say, okay, if you want to get from me what I got from him, and the person said, yeah, that's what I want. So he's going to say, you're going to have to sit with me. You're going to have to live with me. Because what I got from him, it wasn't just from seeing him. It wasn't just from hearing him. It was from living and associating with him and his sohba. So the Tabins would say, fine. The many of them used to keep sohba with many sahaba. And many of them also attached themselves more to particular sahaba. And the Prophet himself instituted this when he was uh, alive on earth. He sent Sayyidina Muad ibn Jabal to Yemen and told all of Yemen, you're going to take all of your deen from him. Sayyidina Ali ta'ala sent Hassan to Basra. That's how he became Hassan of Basri. Sayyidina Ali ta'ala, when he was Khalifa, Amir al-Mu'mineen, he sent Hassan to Basra. And he wrote a letter to the people of Basra. You're going to take all your deen from Hassan. So we have incidents like that as well. Entire communities, cities, Yemen and Basra, entire communities, taking their entire deen from their association and learning with one person, one, one person. So this is a silsila of suhbah. This is a continuous transmission of associated companionship that is in the history of our deen, is in the practice of the Prophet ﷺ, and is in the theory of Qur'an al-Karim. So first feature in the model of Tazkiyah is Suhba. Second feature. Second feature is called Su'al. Su'al. To ask. Ask and inquire. I'll just do all three of them together actually for you. Su'al, Ittila and Ittiba. Su'al means to ask and inquire. Ittila means to inform. To inform the person whose Suhba you're keeping of your condition, of your situation. And these two things are done, asking and informing are done to solicit nasiha, to get advice, and then after that comes ittiba, following that nasiha. So let's start again with the practice of Nabiya Kareem Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Now if you were to ever read hadith widely, and alhamdulillah so much of it has now come into English, then instead of all of that foolish surfing on random websites that the young Muslims do, they should close the computer open up a book of hadith, and take a window into, a journey into the window of the life of Medina Munawra. Now when you read these ahadith in Mubarakah, you will be amazed. That a lot of them are Sahabi Akram asking Nabi Akram some questions. This is what we call Barakah Tusail, this is the Barakah of the questioner. And they were such simple, sincere, straightforward, honest people, they would ask the Prophet some every single thing. So asking. Asking. In theory of Quran, Allah SWT says in Quran, Fasalu ahlu dhikri in kuntum la ta'lamun, that you should ask the people of dhikr if you don't know. Let's translate it backwards. In kuntum la ta'lamun, if you don't know, if you don't know how to do amal on Quran, you know the words, lower your gaze. You know the meaning, lower, you know what that verb means, you know what gaze means, but you don't know how to do it. You know the word taqwa, you know its meaning, but you don't know how to get it. You know these things, but you don't know how to get them for yourself. In kuntum la ta'lamun, you don't know how to do it yourself. Fas'alu, you should go ask. 
The word Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala used in Quran is you should ask, inquire, make su'al of the Ahl al-Dhikr. Now if you think about it in Quran, what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala should have said, He should have said, Fas'alu Ahl al-Ilm. Because what's being said, in kuntum la ta'alum, if you don't have ilm, so you're saying, if I don't have ilm, I should ask the ulama. Al-Sahan said, no. If you don't have ilm, ask the people of dhikr. Why? Who are the people of dhikr? So the Mufassirun explained this under this ayah, right? That the people of dhikr are those who have ilm, who do amal on their ilm, who practice according to their knowledge, have ikhlas or sincere in that practice only for the sake of Allah. Why? Because Allah is training us, don't get knowledge just for knowledge's sake. Don't get knowledge for mere intellectual edification. The purpose of your getting that ilm is so you can do amal on it with ikhlas. Therefore, you have to get that ilm, not just from sahabi ilm. You have to get ilm from that person who has been able to make beneficial use of that ilm. Those are the ahlul dhikr. So in the prophetic practice, we find su'al. And in the Quranic theory, again, we found su'al. So first thing was suhbah. Second thing was su'al. Third thing is called ittila. Ittila means to inform. It's very close to su'al and just separating it out because sometimes sahabi karam would simply inform the Prophet They wouldn't necessarily even know that they need to ask. They just wanted to present their state in front of him. The most, one of, not the most, one of the very well-known examples of this is Sayyidina Hanzala radiallahu ta'ala anhu and Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Sayyidina Hanzala was walking the streets of Medina Mar saying, Nafaka Hanzala, Nafaka Hanzala. Hanzala has become a hypocrite. He's saying about himself. Hanzala has become a hypocrite. So Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq went to him and said that, Hanzala, what, oh, what's the matter with you? And he said that, you know, when I'm with the Prophet I feel one way, and when I'm not with him, I feel lower. So I'm, I'm a hypocrite. My spiritual state is heightened when I'm with him, and it's lowered when I'm not with him. So I should be the same, because I'm always in front of Allah. So Sayyidina Abu Bakr said that Hanzala, if that's the definition of nifaq, hypocrisy, then I'm also a manafiq. Come, let's go together to the Prophet and inform him of our condition. This is ittila. Ittila. And as some of you, if you know the hadith, Nabi Akram told them, he laughed at them, and he smiled at them, and he said, oh, children, right? If you're the same way, you are like with me when I'm not around, but the angels will be coming down and different versions have to shake your hand or to kiss your hand or etc. So it's not possible. That's not human. People will have varying states. People will have varying states. But they inform the Prophet of their spiritual condition. Right? So we had suhbah, we had su'al, we had ittilan, ittiba. Ittiba means that when you, after the questioning and the informing and during the association, when you receive nasiha, you follow that nasiha. You follow that nasiha. There's many examples of this. Obviously in the Quran, Kareem, Sahaba followed the Prophet Tabin. The word Tabin can be translated in two ways. Tabin can mean the generation that follows. The successive generation. So some people translate as successors, right? But the word Tabin also comes from the same root, which is ta ba ain and tabi'in can also mean those who do ittiba can also mean muttabi'in in other words the tabi'in are the people who followed the instructions that the sahaba told them the tabai tabi'in are the ones who followed the instructions that the tabi'in gave them Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in the Quran al-Kareem wattabi' sabila man anaba ilayya that do ittiba man of that one person of their sabil uh, do uh, do ittiba means follow the path, the way, the sabil, 
man of that one person, anaba ilayya, who has turned towards us. So you find in prophetic practice and in Quranic theory, again, this notion of ittiba. So this is the prophetic model of tizkiyah. Alright? And this continued throughout history. In fact, we are nothing more than tabai, 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 etc. Tabi'in, sahaba, to Rasulullah, sallallahu alayhi wa That's what we are. That's our hakikah. Right? And unless, you know, if we think we can disconnect ourselves from this and sort of go it alone or that knowledge and intellectual edification is sufficient for us, this area, Tazkiyah, is a precise the area with this won't work. Because Tazkiyah is all about practicing what you already know. <laughs> you don't need me to give you a one-hour talk on what is hasad. You need help and to get hasad out of your heart. You don't need me to give you a one-hour talk as to what is lust. You need to get lust out of your heart. Unlawful lust out of your heart. Right? So it's not about knowledge. It's about That's why the word is Tazkiyah. It's about purification and rectification. Right? And that's learned through Sohbah through su'al, through ittila, and through ittiba of that nasiha. Alright? Now in history, there are a couple of controversies and a couple of things. And I speak very openly, uh, because I don't think, and I think it's been some harm uh, done to the so'af that sometimes people are a bit wary or they mince their words, and that makes people think also the so'af is some type of secret society or some cult science. huh? Right? So I'm going to speak to you extremely openly today, and I want you to ask me questions extremely openly. Inshallah. Right? The word tasawwuf. The word tasawwuf is nowhere in Quran. Yes, correct. The word tasawwuf is nowhere in Hadith. Yes, correct. Or I'll give you a similar example. The word tajweed is nowhere in Quran. Yes, correct. The word tajweed is nowhere in Hadith. Yes, correct. Words and labels change over time. We're concerned with the hakika. You say, I'm wearing this. You can call it jibba, you can call it thobe, you can call it qameez, you could call it shirt. It wouldn't change what it is, right? It is what it is. You're changing the label can never change what it is. The word tajweed is on in Quran, but everybody in the world, 99.9999% of the ummah calls that system of training yourself to pronounce that lectures of Arabic in recitation of Quran correctly, they call that tajweed. The word in Quran is tartil. The word in Quran is tartil. Nobody, almost nobody calls it tartil. You can Google and you can find Qari Shaykh Khalil Husri's tartil set as opposed to uh, some other set, as opposed to his other, right? But otherwise, most people just call it tajweed. Just like that, the word tiskiyah is in Quran. Just like the word tertil is in Quran, most people call it tajweed. The word tiskiyah is in Quran, most people call it tisawaf. It's just a difference in terminology. What difference does it make to us? We can go back and call it tiskiyah. You can <laughs> change all the books on tajweed and start calling them kitab al-tertil as opposed to kitab al-tajweed, or the book of tertil as opposed to the book of tajweed. What difference would it make in any case, right? What matters is what is between the covers. So explain this. This is a big myth about the word tisawaf. Right? And some people say, say it came from the Arabic word Safa. Safa means purity, right? Not to be confused with Ikhwan Safa, brethren of purity. That was a particular sort of mystical moral philosophy movement, right? I don't know how many of you are sort of liberal arts and humanities people, or all of you seem to be medicine engineering people, as the Muslims always have this ajeeb manaswat with sciences, such that they call it Umul Islamiya sciences as well, right? <laughs> Turbocharged scientific mind. Allah Akbar. You need a turbocharged column. Mm. Column. Here. 
So, not to be confused with that, Safa just meant purity. Some say it comes from Ashabu Sufa. Ashabu Sufa Tasawuf was a sort of slightly amalgamated version of that. Ashabu Sufa, as all of you know, were those Sahaba Ikram who dedicated themselves, such as Sayyidina Abu Hurairah radiallahu ta'ala an, Sayyidina Abdullah bin Umar radiallahu ta'ala an, Humal and a few others, to day and night with the Prophet Ashik, Ashik Sadiq. They couldn't get enough. <laughs> they left everything. I some people say, you know, can you leave everything? You can't. Should you? That you need somebody to guide you in your individual situation. Can you? Yes, 100% you can leave everything for deen. 100% you can. Ja'i is 100%. Mufti Kamal gives you fatwa. Ja'i is 100%. What makes us think it's not Ja'i's? Is it ideal, preferable? That depends on every individual, their case, their context, their circumstances. And that's why you need elders to decide for you. Right? But a Sahaba Sufa did it. Not every Sahaba did it. It's a small minority of Sahaba. Right? The majority of Sahaba kept their earning their livelihood going along with associating with the company of the Prophet ﷺ. These were those few Sahaba who left all means of living, all livelihood. And day and night they were in suhba and ibadah and zikr and tilawat and salah. That's all they did. So that's jais. That's jais. Right? So here some people say the word tasawwuf came from Ashaba Sufa. Right? The people of the bench, the people normally to translate it like that in English. The people of the rose. Different ways you can translate. Obviously, there's no bench there. <laughs> if you go, people, our deen is a deen of, oh, not benches. <laughs> we sit on the floor, right? Uh, so, hear about that word. Now, two, three words. Be'a, zikr, and sheikh. They're going to speak openly, right? So, the word be'a. The word be'a exists in Quran. Surah Al-Mumtahina mentions the be'a of women. It exists in Hadith Sahih Bukhari Kitab Al-Iman, a Hadith narrated by Sayyidina Ubad ibn Samit mentions the bayah of men. What is that bayah that is mentioned in Quran and Hadith? There are four types of bayah, right? The Arabic word bayah means to make a commitment, to make a pledge or to make a commitment by means of making a pledge on a particular intention, all right? To make a commitment to an intention by means of taking a pledge, that is the word bayah. So as we explained to you, that one Arabic word takes about 10 to 15 English words to translate. You know, like in Pakistan, you give one dollar and get 85 rupees, right? <laughs> because the dollar is strong and the rupee is weak. Arabic is strong and English is weak. You don't try. Sometimes you make a mistake and don't try to use one English word to fit in Arabic. No problem. Write 10 words because it's about meaning. All language is just to convey meaning. You've got to get at the meaning. One Arabic word is powerful that can convey a meaning to you that there's no one English word that can convey that level of meaning to you. So use 10 if you need to. Use 10 if you need to. So the English for bear is to make a commitment by means of taking a pledge on a particular intention. That's what bear is. <laughs> Alright? Okay. The word bear is used in Quran and Sunnah in four different ways. One is called Bayatul Imam. That sometimes, when some people came to the Prophet to accept Islam, he used the word bay on them, as opposed to shahada, or, to sh- or as opposed to shahada, or any other word. He says, I'm going to take a commitment from you by way of pledge that you really believe in la ilaha illallah subhanahu wa ta'ala wa Muhammad Rasulullah Right? Okay. Second way the word bay was used in Quran, and also hadith, but also in Quran, the first one was just in hadith, is for hijrah. When Sahaba Ikram migrated to Abyssinia, Ethiopia, and more when the Sahaba Ikram migrated to Medina Manara, the Prophet took a bear for them. This Allah subhanahu mentions in Quran. Inna ladhina yubayu'unaka inna ma yubayu'unallah. 
That indeed those who give bear to you, it is as if they've given bear to Allah. Literally the hand, this is another place where one English word is going to do justice, the hand of Allah is over their hands. Alright? Okay. That's for our colleague at Oxford to explain to you what yad means. I won't do that. <laughs> I may have a different position than him on that one. Alright? Alright. So that is Bayat al-Hijrah. Right? What was the nature of that bear? There are many aspects of that bear, right? That you would actually do the hijrah. One aspect of it was that you wouldn't be in touch with your non-Muslim relatives in Makkah Makaram after you migrate to Medina Manorah. There were certain aspects to that that the Apostle felt he wanted to take a pledge. Third type of bear is known as Bayat al-Jihad in the literature. It's not in Quran. This one's also just in Hadith. But the words in Hadith are Bayat al-Mot. That sometimes, again, not of all the Mujahideen, the Apostle took a bear from some Sahaba Mujahideen. Bet al-Mot, that they would fight until even death would overtake them. Alright? Okay. The fourth type of bear, which is in Quran, that's what I mentioned to you, Surah Mumtahana, the bear of women, and Sahih Bukhari Kitab al-Iman, bear of men, that is called bear of Tawbah. In that, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that, let's say in Quran, Ya Nabi, da ja'ak al-Mu'minat, that, oh my beloved Messenger, someone, the believing women come to you to give bear to you. On what? Allah an la yushikna shay'a that they will not associate any idols with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they will not yushikna with zina, they will not steal, they will not do zina, they will not bury their children alive, they will not do any buhtan, they will not slander anyone. And they will not do any type of sin, they will not disobey you in any known matter. What should you do? Fabayahunna. You should take their bed. Second, wastagfirlahunna Allah, you should make a stick to Allah subhanahu wa for them. And almost exactly the same words are in Sahih Bukhari, but it was a bit different for the men. For the women, the women came and said they wanted to give bayah. Right? And Allah Ta'ala said, take their bayah. For the men, the Prophet was sitting with the Sahaba, and he said, oh my companion, shall I not take your bayah? And they said, on what, Ya Rasulullah? And he said almost the exact same words as the ayah. That you won't do shirk, steals, and a botan, you won't do any known sin. And they said, they took the bayah. Right? So this has been labeled just like the words Alamot were labeled as Bayat al-Jihad. These words have been labeled as Bayat al-Tawbah. That the Prophet made people take this, make this firm commitment by means of taking a pledge on what intention that they would renounce all sin. That they would make true Tawbah to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this is a Sunnah Amal that is Sabbath from Quran and Hadith. Now a question arises that is this something that was khas with the Prophet Right? Is this something that is unique to him? So there are books that the Muhammadan have written on this called the Khasayas literature, such as Khasayas al-Kubra, in which they have listed those things that are specifically for the Prophet and not part of his Sunnah legacy, such that he could marry more than four women, such that the Hajjul was farther upon him, such that sleeping did not break his wudu, etc. None of those Muhammadan have listed this bayah as something that was particular to the Prophet And no Mufassar that I've read under that ayah has said that this was particular to the Prophet. It's part of his sunnah. It's part of the sunnah model of tazkiyah. And the whole model of tazkiyah has to be taken up and propagated. The whole sunnah model of tazkiyah has to be the model that is followed by the ulama of tazkiyah until the end of time. In the time of Sahaba, however, they didn't take this tar- particular type of bear. Why? Because a different type of bear arose in time of Sahaba, which wasn't there in the time of the Prophet, and that's called bear to khilafah. Bear to the Amir Mu'mineen. And no other Saba wanted to bear to Toba because they didn't want to make it look like there was some type of rivalry, right? 
from the time of Sahaba, you don't find this Beit Toba, and it's very difficult to trace historically the origin of when this revived. Some suggest in the Tabi and Hasan al-Basri, some say Tabai Tabi, in some place later, right? And this may also be a part of that old tradition that is lost to us, that we do, but has not been historicized, has not been textualized historically, right? But it's something that was resumed, I would say roughly around, I would say became more widespread by the late 2nd century Hijri, and then it becomes something standard. Now what is Be'a? Be'a is nothing more and nothing less than an enrollment process. Just like in school, you in universities, you have enrollment and registration. Just like when we used to, we were a professor at university, we had our registered students and we had auditors. As far as they go, everybody hears the same lecture. But obviously, office hours, you give preference to the registered students. In terms of grading papers, I once had a kid who was an auditor in my class, he even wrote the paper, and he wanted me to read it, right? Now, normally, if every auditor did that, I would say, there's no way I don't have time, right? But because only one of them, I said, okay, since he was so sincere, I read it, but normally, you wouldn't read. What does that mean? You wouldn't take the sa'al, you wouldn't work one-to-one, you wouldn't correct, you wouldn't mark their paper because they're an auditor. They're not registered, right? So, Be'ah simply meant to register oneself as a student of a sheikh. That's it. With this intention of Tawbah. Be'ah is nothing more and nothing less than that. You don't worship the sheikh. You Sheikh is not a cult leader leading some type of cult following. It's just like you take sometimes a Qari Sahib as an Ustad, means I want to study Quran properly with you. Not that every now and then I show up every once or twice a week. I want, you say in Urdu, I'll say it in English again, but I want to Right? Sheikh, I want to study the Hadith. We want I want that you regularly, formally teach us I want to regularly, formally be your student. We say that to our teachers in Hadith, in Tajweed, in Tafsir, in Fiqh. The same thing was said in Tasawwuf. That was just the name given to it was Be'ah. That's it. Right? It's nothing more, nothing less than that. Be'ah cannot change anything in Sharia. What is farz and wajib before Be'ah is farz and wajib afterwards. What is haram is equally haram afterwards. Some people think taking Be'ah sometimes you read some maqam. There's no maqam. <laughs> did you read some maqam when you enrolled in Cambridge? That's not a maqam. No, all you did was register. Right? Some people think if I become bear, if I do a sin, uh, it'll be like even greater sin now. It can be great. It was always a sin. It was a sin before bear, and it's the same sin after bear. It doesn't go up and down. It has no effect on Sharia whatsoever. Zikr is nafil before bear, and it's nafil after bear. Zikr is still nafal after Be'ah, but normally you will see, just like if a student registers for an elective class I teach, the class is still elective. I mean, I know in the UK you don't have the system. <laughs> All you guys do is taking exams once a year. <laughs> Ajeeb, right? In America, where we have, if you ask me, proper education, <laughs> no offense <laughs> attended, right? Uh, <laughs> if somebody enrolls in an elective course, it's always an elective. Enrolling in it doesn't change. It's, still, it's, not gonna, it's never going to count for your major. Registering for it doesn't make it count for your major. Acing it, getting a triple one, huh? And it doesn't make it count for your major. It's always going to go for your elective credits, right? But normally the students who register for an elective course, they study it more properly. They study it more diligently. They study it more regularly. They study it more carefully. Just like that, anybody can come and listen. But, and anybody can do zikr. Zikr is open. That I could even teach you if you want. 
You don't have to be bad to do zikr. Zikr is wide open. But it's observed that a person who decides to make a commitment, it becomes more regular in their zikr. It's observable empirical data, right? It's a sociological, social, psychological, real phenomenon. All right. Here, enough about Baal, so I'll leave the rest for your questions and answers, right? Two things remain, zikr and sheikh. Okay? Zikr and sheikh. Let me do zikr first. Sometimes a person will ask that, okay, don't you need extra zikr? I meet ulama who talk like this, right? Really? We don't. That you don't need any zikr because are you trying to suggest that the Prophet Sunnah is not enough for you? And it's a very emotional way of phrasing things, right? It's a very emotionally powerful way. If they look, all the zikr that you need is in the hadith. Why do you need anything more than that, right? And if you phrase it that way 100%, I would agree as well, right? If you think about it in those terms, you would agree. Now, here comes the concept of bid'ah, right? Bid'ah. All right. When it comes to ibadah, because I don't have time to teach you the whole thick of bid'ah. So let's just look at ibadah, right? Because zikr is an ibadah, right? Okay. There are two types of ibadah. And the definition of bid'ah is different based on the type of ibadah. First type of ibadah is farz, wajib, or sunnah ibadah. In farz, wajib, and sunnah ibadah, you cannot do anything that is not mentioned in Quran and Hadith. If you do anything as part of farz, wajib, sunnah ibadah that is not in Quran and Hadith, that can legitimately be called bidah. So the definition of bidah when it comes to farz, wajib, and sunnah ibadah is that which is not established or proven or mentioned in Quran and sunnah. That's the definition of bidah. However, there's another type of ibadah called nafil, mustahab, mandub, recommended, commended, preferable, optional, if you will, ibadah. That, the definition of bidah is different. So let me give you an example. Two examples. What are the two most common types of nafil ibadah? Doa and zikr. Yes? The most common types of nafil ibadah are doa and zikr. The definition of bidah when it comes to nafil ibadah is you can do anything you want in addition to Quran and Hadith. You can add whatever you want as long as it's not against the Sharia. So the definition here is not ma thabata bil Quran wa sunnah, that which is established from Quran and sunnah. The definition of bidah here is going to be that which is khilaf to Quran and Hadith. Let me give an example of dua. I think all of you would have probably heard of Imam Sudais. Yes? Imam al-Haram, Imam al-Ka'ba, Makkah Mukarama. No? Yes? Imam Sudais? No. Imam Sudais? You know him? Okay. So in the month of Ramadan, he's a prayer leader in common. So in the month of Ramadan, he leads Taraweeh prayers. Sometimes he leads the last ten. When he leads the last ten, he also leads Witr. When he leads Witr, he makes Doa. The Doa is called Kunut in Hadith, right? Everybody with me? Okay. In front of everyone in Makkah Mukarramah, and in front of pretty much the whole Ummah, either live on TV or later they watch it, or it's YouTube or whatever, it's the most public act in the world, I think, leading Salah in Haram. What does he do in Witr? In the Dua. He makes some Duas from Quran, yes. He makes some Duas in Hadith, yes. And then he makes all types of Duas that are not mentioned in Quran and not mentioned in Hadith. And no one in the world calls that bidah. In fact, I'll go even so far as to say that doa kunut has not even been left unspecified. It's specifically mentioned in hadith. There are two or three of them that are marwi, 
that are narrated in hadith, and he doesn't feel any need to confine himself to just those. Now, if we were to use emotional rhetoric, I could say, Mom, Sudeis, what are you doing? Aren't the du'as that Nabi Kareem Sassam recited in with her enough for you? Do you think you need to add to that? Do you think you need to go beyond that? Right? No one would think like that. Nobody talks like that. MashaAllah, the whole Ummah listens to his du'a, live recorded and says, Ameen, and cries over the du'a and feels the du'a. Right? Because everybody understands that du'a is nafil ibadah. In nafil ibadah, you can do additional to what's in Quran and Hadith. So just everything I just said for du'a is exactly the same thing for dhikr. Alright? So that is why just like Imam Sadeis and many other Imams before him, and I'm sure many more after him, have used and will continue to use du'as that are not mentioned in Hadith. Many Mashaikh of Tasawwuf did teach dhikr al that are not specifically mentioned in Hadith as they are taught, but there is nothing in that method of zikr. That's very important, and let me finish that part. Nothing in that method of zikr that goes against sharia. Now, when you know when you come into sharia, that's a whole separate topic for another time, right? Uh, that is a world of fiqh and ijtihad, and sometimes there are differences in plurality of opinion over there. Some things that everybody agrees about, that you cannot do any zikr that violates the norms of gender segregation or gender interaction of Islam. You cannot do zikr that involves music, dance, etc., some differences of opinion as to certain methods of zikr. Some jurists have felt that zikr involving movement is also not okay. Hadara, right? Other jurists have felt, no, it is okay. So that, and because there are valid scholars who have said it's okay, even though I may not personally follow that position, and I don't ascribe to that position, but that could come within valid difference of legal opinion in Islam, right? That's a whole separate topic, all right? Um, so, you cannot do any zikr that is against sharia. The last part about zikr is uh, Alama ibn Abidin Rihimullah, who I feel is the last great Hanafi mujtahid, author of al Muhtar, known more popularly and lovingly in Pakistan as Fatawa Shamia, has written another sign that zikr can become bidah. Even if you passed all these checks, there's another sign you have to make sure you don't have. And that is, An yula'ima that you reprimand the person who leaves it, you chastise the person who leaves it. Because that means you just elevated enough of them. So somebody doesn't come to the zikr circle, you can't say anything to them. Somebody doesn't do zikr, you can't view them as less in any way. Because zikr was nafil. Nafil meant ikhtiyar. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave you the choice to do it or not, do it equally. Obviously, they're not in any way trying to diminish the benefits and virtues and merits of it. So if you are so attached to a zikr, that you reprimand, chastise, look down on somebody, that's a sign that it's bidah, because you're not really viewing it as nafil. You may put the label on it, but the label doesn't matter how you're treating it, you're treating it as something above nafil, and you can't do that. So that's another check that the fuqaha put on this phenomenon of zikr. There were some jurists historically that had a backlash. The backlash was because some people did do zikr that were against sharia. Some people were guilty of what I just said, that they were reprimanding people who love zikr. So they did what in sort of in English, or at least in American English, <laughs> in British English is quite different. In American English we have the saying that if you give someone an inch, they'll take a mile. So this is what they saw. They said, okay, you know, Dean gives them an inch, but they're taking a mile. So what did they do? They tried to close the door. Now that was a reaction on their part. And the Dean of the Psalm tells every Muslim you should never be reactive. And most of all, ulama should never be reactive. 
But I can understand in the context and setting they were in why they felt that reaction was justified. But the reality is you can't take back the inch because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave that inch. How can you take back what He has given? Right? So what we can do, and this is just my own sort of way, some of my terminology in English, but just my own way of understanding it, is you can build mile-high borders on that inch to protect that inch, to make sure people don't take it beyond the inch, but you can't take the inch back. You can't do that. You can't say, well, no, actually, brother, you know, it is okay to do zikr, but because so many people take it too far, so many people go straight, so we're going to take back zikr altogether. You can't do that, right? You cannot specify and particularize what Allah subhanahu has left and specified. Allah subhanahu said in Quran, kathira, I did that for your Juma, right? That you must remember Allah subhanahu abundantly, and He has not restricted that to any particular way. He has not specified that to any particular way. He has left that open, just like He left dua open. For example, Allah said in Quran, لِلَّهِ الْأَسْمَاءُ husna فَدْعُوهُ biha That to Allah subhanahu belong the Asma'ul husna Another very important ilm from the ulum islamiyah, right? And you should make dua to him using them. How? There's no one single restricted way to do it. Even in hadith, you wouldn't be able to find one detailed particular way to do it. You would find some snippets in hadith, but you're not restricted to them in any case. Because that's nafil ibadah, and it's that which Allah Ta'ala has left open. And finally, Alama Abdul Hayyal Laqtimbi Rehimullah has written a book in Arabic, which has been translated actually by the sheikhs here in Birmingham into English uh, on this notion of bidah and worship. And in that, Allah Allah clearly demonstrates that Sahaba Karam in the life of the Prophet used to make types of dhikr that the Prophet didn't teach them. After the Prophet passed away, Sahaba Karam made dhikr that the Prophet didn't teach them. So did Tabin and so did Tabai Tabin. And then the last and concept of bidah is whatever the Sahaba Tabin, listen to this carefully, whatever the Sahaba Tabin and Tabai Tabin allowed for themselves, that's allowed for us. So if they allowed for themselves to do an extra additional dhikr as nafil ibadah that is not found in hadith and is allowed for us to do that, there's nothing special with them. In that sense, they don't have a unique status that they alone can make an extra dua and zikr and we can't, no. What was allowed for them was allowed for us because the same deen that they had is the same deen that we had. So this explains now Baya, Bida, and Zikr, last thing left with Shaykh, right? Oh, and I've tried to use few sources that are available in English. Ibn Qayyim al That book's also been translated into English, in fact. Uh, we taught it in Pakistan uh, as part of our course. He also, clearly, in that text, and I didn't bring that one with me, uh, talks about Shaykh and taking Shaykh. Right? Now, what is Shaykh? Shaykh is very simply three things. You may be surprised that I'm talking to you so openly in the first gathering, but I wouldn't normally actually do that, right? Um, but, you know, what's often the first may indeed be the last, uh, because I don't know when I'm going to come to Cambridge again and see people again and when you're going to see me again. And sometimes I explain to people this way that in Pakistan, when you go as a guest to somebody's house, they like put a lot of food in your plate. <laughs> And they keep putting food in your plate. And then when you kind of protest and tell them it's kind of a lot, they say, Who knows when you will come to our house again? So I'm kind of doing the same thing with you. <laughs> I'm talking at a fast speed. I'm throwing a lot of stuff at you. Because who knows when I will see you again? And when you will see me again? Hmm? That's the nature. It's my experience. 
being in this line for many, many years. And most of the faces we see, we don't see them again. There are a few that we see often. Many people, you never end up seeing them again, right? And because the Sof is again so misrepresented and underrepresented, underrepresented, uh, I feel it's very important that we have to get the message out. It's an amanat that I have from my teacher. Alhamdulillah, I've been a student of the Sof for 17 years. I'm older than I look. <laughs> and older than my American accent. The British accent gives you guys like extra 5-10 years in age. In the British accent. The American accent is very nice and casual. Right? Allahu Akbar. What can you do? So Sheikh, Sheikh, what is Sheikh? Sheikh is nothing more and nothing less than a tutor in zikr, a tutor in taqwa, and a tutor in toba. That's it. Sheikh is not the be all and end all of Islam. Sheikh is not now I can only take all my tafsir and all my hadith and all my fiqh from him. No. You have many, many teachers, many I myself have studied Alhamdulillah under many ulama. So I'm going to get everything from my Sheikh. But real tuition, not for barakah. I'm amazed, you know, I've met ulama who love to collect ijazas and hadith just for barakah. They didn't actually properly study those hadith under that muhaddith. Properly studying means the muhaddith and you recite that hadith, you go into the commentaries, you go into the meaning of that hadith, that's called the study of hadith. And then there's this tabarak and giving of ijazah. A couple of months, you know, it happens in Pakistan, it happens. Oh, I give you barakah, you have ijazah for me and all the books, all the hadith I know. That's not actually learning, right? But see, people accept that there's some barakah in this. That's fine. I'm amazed that the same ulama who think there's barakah in this, they don't accept the barakah in real tasawuf. <laughs> it blows my mind, right? Uh, so tasawuf shouldn't be treated like that either. You shouldn't take a shaykh just for barakah. And I know, and, and this is a problem, and that's what gives tasawuf a bad name. We don't want tasawuf to be something that's trendy or something that's hip. Or in these years, the ISOC is Sufi. But later on, it became Salafi. Oh yeah, back in the day, it was like this. And then this day, he's made a mockery of the entire deen. You've made a mockery of the Sof if you do that. But you make a mockery of the entire deen. Right? Sof is about learning. Right? And if you are Malana Room, you will get a sheikh like Shamsit Tavriz. But if you're in first grade math, the chairman of Harvard Math is going to come and teach you addition. Right? People have made the sawaf like, uh, you know, just like another badge that they have. I'm bare to Sheikh X. Okay, do you communicate with Sheikh X? Is Sheikh X? You need to know what Ragra is. I say Urdu to enjoy myself. Don't worry, I always translate it for you. Don't panic. Don't panic, right? Ragra is called Tarbiya, Tarbiya, Tarbiya. Moral training. Right? It's like me saying that, you know, yeah, my name is registered as a patient under the chair of ophthalmology at Harvard Med School. Is that going to help me? Is that going to get me a prescription? Does he know my eyes? No, I need a local eye doctor who knows me, who looks into my eyes, who sees my eyes, who opens up a patient history file on me, who has a file who I visit regularly, who can fix me, cure me, help me. Right? So this is another disservice to the Sawaf that has become a, sometimes trendy. And then you see you have the trend and the counter-trend and the reaction and the counter-reaction. Then it just becomes a whole, you know, something that, that it, it, it's, it's relegated to your blogosphere and forums. All types of blogs and forums and the Sufis on the Salafi forum and the Salafis going on the Sufi forum and you guys just go out with one another. And that's how you spend your time. Really, I would honestly say, forget haram. 
Allah could say this from the amount of time that the young Muslim spends on halal internet Islamic surfing, if he spent that time on zikr, he become a waliullah. You think you don't have the time. You have the time, you use it in the wrong places, the wrong places. We are people of muta'ala and zikr, we are people of reading and remembrance. Instead we become people of surfing and commenting. We become people of surfing and commenting. This is what we are. Allahu Akbar. So Shaykh is actually a tutor, tutor. Tutor and zikr, what does that mean? That he instructs you with some zikr to do. And if you do it, because many people take the prescription, put it in their pocket, and they go. <laughs> Imagine if the doctor gave you an antibiotic and you didn't take it. Or the doctor said, take it three times a day for seven days and come back to me. You come back to me and say, yeah, you know, I took like a couple of tablets every now and then whenever I felt like it. So that's obviously why you're still sick. <laughs> you were supposed to take it three times a day for seven days. Dhikran kathira. As Mata says, some things, the miqdar, the amount is matloob, the amount is important. If there's water 500 feet deep, you can dig 100 wells of 300 feet, you won't get a drop of water. You won't get a drop of water. So tutor and zikr. If you do the zikr, then the shaykh makes it better, works on the quality, right? Works on the quality, maybe sometimes also change the quantity. Tutor in taqwa and tawbah, that is through the bayan, sohbah, majlis, wa'ad, nasiha. That's how the tutoring in taqwa and tawbah takes place. And that's what shaykh is. So now we have the sawwuf, we have zikr, bayan, bidat, shaykh. What else could there be? Oh, silsala and tariqa, right? Now what is that, right? So, you know, what does it mean? This isn't a problem because a lot of people misuse this. It's not meant to be some cult identity. It's not a badge. But, oh, yeah, you know, I went to that gathering, I took my hi, I'm a Nakshamandi, or oh, I'm a Jishti, or I'm a Baalui, huh? or Habayab, or, or, or I, I don't know what they call Trika, maybe they call Hadadi Trika, right? So, and then next thing you know, right, all the people, and then the person who's not, and this is also called Bida. If you give the other person a feeling of Mughayra, Mughayra, if he feels Ghair to you, if the other person feels, oh yeah, that person is this and I'm not, and he feels rare, he feels like he's other, you made it a bidah. You just made the self a bidah by that. You're not supposed to feel there. And it's unfortunate that these identities, you know, let me give you an example of identity that every one of you have. You may not have known it. The Quran al Kareem exists in seven different recitations. Seven mutawatir, canonical recitations. The vast majority you recite in hafs. But you don't call yourself hafsi. <laughs> and when you meet a Moroccan, you don't call him warshi. Right, he's, re- he's reciting in the Rabbi of Warsh. But in reality, he is reciting in a distinct, separate style of Kirat. And you're reciting in a distinct, separate style of Kirat. Hafs. But it's perfectly fine. You don't feel ghair ghair to one another. That's how it's supposed to be with Hanafi, Shafi, Maliki, Hanbali, and Salafi. If the Salafis could ever agree, they should just be a fifth mother. It's that simple. <laughs> I have no problem with that. You follow the usul of Ibn Taymiyyah and Ibn Qayyim, Ibn Qayyim, Ibn Qayyim, and that's fine by us. And you know, these people have their living muftis, and you had Shaykh bin Baal, Shaykh Uthameen, Rehmullah, it's fine. Because they're from Ahl al-Taq, and you have to understand them as well. You know, because the quote-unquote Sufi Isaacs in UK are like two anti-Salafi. They're from the people of Taqwa, what's the matter with you? They believe haram to be haram, they believe hijab to be farad, they believe sunnah to be sunnah, they believe interest to be haram. They may have a slightly different understanding of ijtihad, right? And if they choose it in tasawwuf, they don't want to take their tasawwuf through shaykh and behind no problem. 
if somebody says, I'd rather confine myself to the zikrs and hadith, we say, no problem. Just like if we prayed, if Imam said this one night, just recited the dua that is mentioned in hadith and mitzvah, we'd say, that's fine, it's no problem, it's completely fine, that's also fine. If you want to do that, we have no problem with that. Completely fine with that. Alright? So, it should not lead to a feeling of mughayra. It should not make the other person feel like the other. That's wrong. It's not a good thing. Then you're not, you know, my own Sheikh calls us, they're not Sufi, they're goofy. Allah <laughs> Akbar. He said that in an English talk once in South Africa. That these people, they're not Sufi, they're goofy. <laughs> we have a lot of goofies, huh? Not all the proper Sufis. Even Ibn Taymiyyah, understood, he made three types, three categories of people in Tasawwuf. The first category he said, that they're A'immatul Hida. A'imma is plural of Imam. They're the Imams of guys who are Islam. And they're the sheikhs of Islam. But those were the ones that weren't goofy. Those were the ones that were Sufi. right? And he mentioned names. He writes the names. He writes a list of names in Fatawa. Fadail ibn Ayyad, Abdul Qadr, Jilani, Junaid, Baghdadi, Rahimullah, Ta'ala, Hajmain. He writes, and he knew, Ibn Timur knew that Sheikh Abdul Qadr took Bayah. He knew that. It's not like anybody didn't know that. He knows Sheikh Abdul Qadr took Bayah. He knows that he taught zikr that was indeed. And he's calling him an Imam of Huda and Sheikh of Islam. That was a true Sufi. That was absolutely they were awliyaullah. Right? So this is an, in a very sort of, you know, very fast, uh, very intense introduction to you, to Tazkiyah. I mean, the last thing I will do, right, because, uh, and then I'll stop there for the questions, is what are the aims of Tazkiyah? What are the aims and objectives? Number one, to leave all sin. Both Zahir and Batan. This is the number one goal of the Sawaf. And in these days, most people enter the Sawaf for this reason. Like the dirty piece of clothing that needs to go into the laundry, right? The only condition you have to be to go into the laundry machine is you have to be dirty. <laughs> Earlier on, the Sawaf used to be to get the Qurb and Marafat of Allah. That was the clean piece of clothing, trying to get ithar and perfume. That's a different type of the Sawaf. That still exists, but that is, you know, after a person has made themselves a person of taqwa and ikhlas and sabr and shukr. So the first goal of tasawuf is to leave all sin outwardly and inwardly, to stop doing it and to stop wanting it. The second goal is to replace the bad characteristics with the good characteristics, to replace arrogance and pride with humility, real humility. Humility is not just the way you speak or the way you talk. Humility is an inner thing, it's the way you view yourself, right? It's the way you view yourself. And fortunately, in a lot of Pakistani DC culture, you have a lot of that false humility. You have a lot of people who bazaar mibarajas, who are, you know, like that. But inside, Allah Akbar, uh, they don't have that humility, right? Americans, I think, I like to think, are much more uh, forthright and frank. I mean, not to put my nisbat with that place, but what can you do? We, some of their good attributes may have crept into us because <laughs> they were born there. Very open people, very open friend. The British are <laughs> stereotypically known, maybe unfairly, <laughs> as being quite the opposite. Having a lot of tasanno and takalluf, right? Khair, so to replace the bad qualities with the good qualities, right? Means to get the sifat of the mu'mineen that are mentioned in Quran. These are words in Quran, mukhlisin, muttaqeen, awabeen, sabirin, shakirin, zakirin. These are words for us. <laughs> we were supposed to be that. We were supposed to be the alladhina amanu who are not content with being just alladhina amanu. We were supposed to be people who tried to become sabirin, shakirin, zakirin. So to get the sifat mu'minana, the sifat of the mu'mineen. Third, is to get yaqeen in one's iman. 
The Sunni Imam Muslim explains that when a person does zikr, they experience Allah. How? I'll show you from Quran. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Quran, فَذْكُرُونِي أَذْكُرْكُمْ Remember me, I will remember you. A person will feel that. In some way, it's hard to explain in words. But obviously, I think you can understand rationally that if Allah remembers a person, it can't be entirely unfelt. If Allah remembers you, you're going to start feeling it. When you feel that, then you get yakin because you felt Allah. Like a person says, you know, no, 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 I have first-hand experience. They say that to you to convince you they're absolutely certain of something. They say, I have first-hand experience. This person will have such a yakin that inshallah you put that person in a room with a hundred atheists and close the door for a million years, he'll come out with his iman intact. Yakin and iman. It's another goal to someone. Fourth is to have a passion in a'mal. To do a'mal salih passionately, lovingly. To enjoy salah. And we love to give this example, to enjoy salah the way we enjoy ice cream. That's how they enjoyed salah. Now for the some kids here. They enjoyed salah, they enjoyed their namaz. They enjoyed their namaz the way we enjoy ice cream. Every spoon of chocolate ice cream. Allah Akbar, mashallah, subhanallah. We never get tired of it. We get a new pleasure every spoon. That's how they prayed salah. They got a new pleasure in every, not just every rakah, not just every ruku and sujood, every tasbih, every subhan. They got a new pleasure. That's how they prayed. That's why they prayed half the night, one third the night. It's not like you people wonder, I don't know how they prayed. Well, they weren't praying the way me and you prayed. If they prayed the way me and you prayed, they wouldn't have been able to pray half the night either. Me and you, we have sugar-free ice cream. <laughs> if I give the boys sugar-free ice cream, they won't even take a spoon. We're praying dhikr-free salah. <laughs> Dhikr-free salah, that's like sugar-free ice cream. Nobody wants to eat sugar-free ice cream and nobody wants to pray dhikr-free salah. You do it out of servanthood and slavehood to Allah. They pray out of passion and love. So another goal of tasawuf is to make a person do a'mal and ibadah passionately and with love. And the last goal of tasawuf is that more sort of esoteric stuff which is called qurb in Qur'an. Allah Ta'ala says, أُولَاكَهُمُ الْمُقَرَّبُونَ they are those who have been drawn intimately near to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the qurb of Allah, marifat of Allah, fana and baka, a whole range of terms they made for this. That is the last goal of the salah, alright? A person obviously like us, we are on step one, leaving sin, the doing of sin, and the wanting of sin. So this was a very brief introduction to that great ilm in the ulum al-Islamiyyah known as ilm al-tasawwuf al-tazkiyah, also called Ilm al-Ihsan wa-Saluk wa-Akhir al-Da'wana and Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen InshaAllah we've left half an hour for your questions you can ask them verbally you can write it down and pass it up both men and women if you don't want <laughs> it's sort of your way of asking anonymously or with Haya perhaps if you're a woman uh, perhaps I don't want to get in the debate or discussion but perhaps there may be more Haya if a woman were to write her question, then ask it. But if a woman doesn't accept that and wants to ask verbally, no problem. In a university setting, we can take that from you. You can ask it verbally also. All right? You mentioned the aspect of dhikr. And uh, from what I understood, you restricted it to uh, forms of dhikr, which are made with your mouth. 
basically. But isn't Dikr kind of all encompassing, even the prayer is Dikr? Of studying the Quran is Dikr, and studying the Hadith is yeah. Dikr, and yes. fasting is Dikr, and yes. Hatim Dikr. And yes. So, uh, two, two aspects to that. Uh, just one minute, Ushfiq. Um, two things, because actually I thought you were asking something, but then I understood what you were asking. But let me do what I thought you were asking, and then I'll do what you're asking. <laughs> uh, first of all, zikr is not just with the tongue; they are also zikr of the heart, right? So the only way to do zikr is not of the tongue. There is also a way to do zikr of the heart, and I'll come back to that after I answer what you asked. The word zikr in Quran al-Karim is used number one for the Quran itself. <coughs> is also used just for nasiha, advice, admon, admonition, reminder, is also used for the remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa And yes, there are two broad senses in which the way the word zikr is used in the language of tasqiyah and tasawwuf. One is any act that is equivalent to the remembrance of Allah. So for example, Shaykh Ahmed Sirhindi, Rimullah, Imam Adabani, Majal Fisan, and writes in his maktubat, that anything that is done in accordance with sharia and sunnah, that is zikr. And then any ibadat counts as zikr, right? Because all of ibadat have the root in them as zikr. So fasting is a zikr, tilawat of Qur'an is a zikr, istighfar is a zikr, drood and salawat is a zikr, right? Tilawat of Qur'an is a zikr, etc. But now if we go back to the first thing I mentioned, which is zikr of the heart, that's also a zikr, that's also in Qur'an. Allah Ta'ala says in Qur'an, وَذْكُرْ رَبَّكَ فِي نَفْسِكَ And remember your Rabb inside yourself. With all humility, with all silence. So clearly a particular zikr is being alluded to here. You cannot call that salah or fasting or any of those other zikrs of the tongue. This is zikr of the heart. The heart, by heart we mean spiritual heart, which in Arabic Quran is called qalb, as opposed to physical heart which pumps blood. Your body has a heart, that's called the physical heart, that pumps blood. Your ruh also has a heart, that is called qalb. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alludes to this in several ayahs. For example, Allah bi dhikrillahi tatma'innul kulub. That only and only in the remembrance of Allah do the hearts find tranquility. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in another ayah, wa la man aghfalna qalbahu and dhikrina. Do not follow that person whose heart has been empty of our zikr. Whose heart we have made empty of our zikr. So there's a notion of qalb and zikr. So yes, tilawat. Salah, istighfar, salawat, dua, fasting, tawaf, all of that counts as zikr. But then there's also something that is just zikr. In of itself, remembrance. An act of remembrance. Not acts of worship that are also remembrance, but an act or practice of zikr itself that's also there in Quran. And like I mentioned to you, the hadith and written narrations of Sahaba that Allama Abdul Hai Laknavirim has gathered, those are zikrs. Those are actually what in the sense that we're using zikr, additional vocal recitation, invocation, remembrances, in addition to all the things that are transmitted. Alright? And if somebody was to try to make the ilmi argument that no, whenever zikr is used in Quran and Adith, it just means the ibadat that you know, i.e. the farz wajib and sunnah ibadat, it's not talking about any type of nafil ibadat, they would be wrong, ilmwise. And any... You know, that would be a discussion for me and that person to have, right? If that was their view. Yeah.
Yes, yes, go ahead. Um, if, if you can't Yeah, there are differences in the way Tazkiyah is taught and learned uh, between men and women, right? And though that difference is due to the Islamic rules that govern gender interaction. So a woman who becomes a student of a sheikh, her relationship with that sheikh is markedly different from a man who becomes a student of that sheikh. So... So what I'm going to say, I'm going to go ahead right now and say specifically, I mean, the men should know it as well because it's part of your deen, right? But what I'm about to say now, lest any of you who are Parishan, what I'm going to say specifically for the women, all right? When a woman becomes student of the sheikh, you see, a woman's tazkiyah takes place differently. As my experience is that, number one, sohbah. So let's go back to the model I started with. Women do not get the same level of sohbah that a man does. And this goes right back to the sahabiyat. No matter what you can say that in Sahih Bukhari, the Sahabiyat asked the Prophet ﷺ that give us time and he gave them time. That time he gave them was like an hour on a Wednesday. It's nothing compared to the time that the men got. There were no women who were in Ashab al-Sufa. No woman Sahabiya could say, I want to become part of Ashab al-Sufa. Right? So in terms of physical, live physical soba, right? A woman gets less than a man. But in my experience, however, that that benefit that a man gets through sohba, the woman gets through ittiba. In other words, the woman does the zikr. And you find that generally in our deen, the benefit that a man gets for leaving the home and praying salah in jama'ah in a sohba of other men, the woman gets the same reward and same spiritual effect by praying alone at her home. So because it's true for fara'id, the same thing is true for zikr. So a woman actually gets the same benefit and the same spiritual power from doing zikr on her own, on her musalla, that a man may get by spending time or traveling with the shaykh. Alright? Uh, so that covers a soba difference. The second thing I mentioned to you was so'al. The so'al, the difference is just in the mechanism of that so'al. Right? So normally, let's say, either due to the rules of gender interaction, or if you want to put it this way, to a more preferred level of haya, right? Men will often ask questions in person. Women will often ask questions in writing or over email, over SMS, but they have access to that su'al. Third difference, another difference in su'al is that where a man's tazkiyah is almost always done, mostly by the sheikh, the woman's tazkiyah is often done, not often, well often, every sometimes, just to be totally safe, sometimes can be done, let's put it just like a professor can have a TA, sometimes the sheikh, either the sheikh's wife or a senior female student of the sheikh, acts as a TA for the women because tazkiyah is something that is a bit more broader. It's not just confined to just the sheikh, right? Tazkiyah means learning from someone, benefiting from someone. So a lot of things can be done uh, with the senior female students, may include or not include, depending on the person, the wife of that sheikh. Also, I want to explain now for both men and women, a common misconception is that you have to tell the sheikh all your sins. It's not like Catholic confession. You don't have to tell the sheikh the act of sin. What you can do sometimes is tell the sheikh the feeling of sin. For example, I feel a lot of envy. You don't have to sit down and mention all the incidents of backbiting that you've done in your life. It's enough to say that you have the feeling of envy and get cured for that. 
If there's something that involves haya, for example, you would not necessarily want a woman who is having feelings of lust to tell her male sheikh that she has those feelings. But it's no problem. She can tell that to a female marida, right? Or, because a lot of the cures are not gender-specific, or an anonymous question, or maybe the sheikh is given, and that's why there's bayan, right? The sheikh has in a talk, and maybe you can listen to it online, has already addressed this issue of lust. So the woman can just listen to that, right? That is why it's not just about Q&A, right? And a lot of the instruction is done through what we call bayan in the Urdu sense, wa'ad, nasiha, right? Uh, exhortation, explication, explanation, all right? Uh, so... Maybe finally I would say that the shaykh is not trying to get to know the woman's personality, right? You're not supposed to share your personality with the shaykh. You're just trying to learn zikr from the shaykh, telling him about your zikr while keeping your personality hidden, right? And learning about uh, problems that you have, those that are not issues of hell, like hasad, that's not an issue, right? Anger, love for the world, a lot of the sins you can ask the male shaykh. And those that do have a certain haya element, then to either have generic questions or have the husband ask or have a male family member ask or, you know, ideally the sheikh would be a person who is expounding on these things generally and you can listen to that uh, in talks, all right? And like I said, finally, for the more individualized attention, uh, if there's, especially if the sheikh's wife is somebody who's also in the sabbath, then you can be personally tutored on those matters that have a certain... Hayya, you understand, right? A certain modesty uh, attached with them based on gender by the wife of the sheikh. So it's just a little bit different. Like a lot, you know, see, who, so who did the, if the male sahaba were hanging out with the Prophet the female sahabiyat used to hang out with the Umahat al-Mu'mineen, right? And they used to ask a lot of questions of the Umahat al-Mu'mineen. And sometimes they would then ask the Prophet right? So similar model. Similar model is there. Obviously, you give bear to barakah just for the sake of it, to some sheikh somewhere, uh, you don't know him, you don't know his wife, you're not in touch with him or his wife, then it, it's difficult. You, the learning won't take place. The learning won't take place. And for the women, so what we've made for you is we have, uh, my wife teaches free online classes for the women. So I'm <laughs> home free as far as that is concerned. And we've given you the brochures for that, right? And we give the lectures, but all the tutoring uh, and instruction uh, is done uh, by my wife on that uh, in that program. For the men, we have nothing online for you. You have to come to us live. <laughs> you can listen to the talks online, but as far as the training, that's better done live. Um, yes. So question. Um, you mentioned before there was the Sunnah Ibadah and then the Nafil Ibadah. Yes, yes. Um, I'm wondering, is the... Uh, sunnah ibadah, so the, for example, the dhikr and the dua that's established from the Qur'an and the hadith, are they in any way superior to the nafil ibadah? And, and if they are, then should one exhaust the uh, ibadah in the sunnah first and then go for the nafil, or can you do them in tandem? Okay. First of all, the two ways the word sunnah is used. One is the word, way the word sunnah is used in our deen is that which is mentioned in hadith. So I'm going to call that ma'thur. Okay. And the other way the word sunnah is used as a legal category in Sharia that has been established by the Fuqaha, mentioning sort of levels and categories of obligation and commendation, which is wajib, sunnah. And there's a lot. If you want to go to the most, farz, wajib, sunnah, muakadah, then sunnah, ghair, muakadah, slash, mandub, slash, muslim, slash, nafal, mubah, makruh, tanzim, makruh, tahrimi, haram. Right? 
So I was using it in the talk in the legal shari sense. And if you remember, I said I can't teach you all the fiqh of bidah, so I was talking in a fixed sense. Those ibadah that are not at the level of emphasized sunnah, but those ibadah that are nafil slash mandub slash mustab slash sunnah ghair So that clarifies that. In answer to your question, however, if we were to take sunnah in another sense, so that I would rephrase the question, that those nafil ibadah that are mentioned in hadith, ma'thur and marwi in rawayat, and those nafil ibadat that have been designed or developed or transmitted from Mashaikh later on, is there some benefit in them, right? So you will find that all of, I, can, well, I shouldn't say all because I can speak for everybody, our own Mashaikh in our own books, we have added, uh, for example, the, what we call the Masnoon A'mal sort of the, uh, in our tradition, right? Those du'ats and dhikrs that are mentioned that you should do them as well. As far as to which is more beneficial, again, in a very emotional appeal would make it sound like that is more beneficial, right? Uh, and if I was to use that again on du'a, then I would say, okay, before you make any du'a for yourself, first make all the du'as that are in Qur'an, then make all the du'as in our hadith, right? And you guys don't even know that yet. I mean, not just recite, but remember you can recite, read it as well, right? But basically, that would pretty much eliminate almost all the du'as that you do. So it seems to me that there should be a healthy balance. Uh, and it's not a question always of what's better. And that's a very sort of, you know, a capitalist human way of profit maximization. So sort of reward and ajr and swab maximization and utility maximization. Or a legacy of that emotional appeal that if it's in hadith, it must be better. Right? Because then if you, you see, I mean, I don't have time to train you in that, but what we normally do when we teach people this is that you have to take a premise and flush out its logical conclusions. So if it's in hadith, it would be better than what Abu Huraira was doing, is he chose ghair abzal over abzal when he started doing all these zikrs. Now we can't think Sahaba would do that, right? So actually there has to be a balance, and there's no sense in one being greater than the other to do only zikr dhikr that are mentioned by Mashaikh and to leave altogether those that are narrated in hadith, that would be wrong. It wouldn't be a sin, but that would be, you could say, less better. That would not be Abzal. To do both, in my view, is Abzal. And to do only ones that are in Hadith, in my view, are in the middle. But other ulama, their view is that to do the ones only in Hadith, that is Abzal. Right? Uh, and part of the reason that, again, I'll give you the example of Dua, right? So, one of our old friends who was back in England, now Mufti Abdurrahman bin Yusuf, he gathered this, uh, or he translated, sorry, a compilation of Dua's of Hassan al-Basri. Istighfarat, right? Now if you look at there are many istighfars that are mentioned in the hadith, but I'll give you one example from Hassan al-Masri. So he says that, Oh Allah, I seek your forgiveness from that sin that I did it, and I made toba for it, then I did the sin again, then I made toba again, then I broke the toba again, and fell in that sin again. You can't find that in the hadith. Because Nabiya Karim Sassam never made that dua. I think we can all understand why. The Prophet would never make a dua like that. That, oh Allah, I seek your forgiveness for that sin <laughs> that I did. And then I made tawbah for Then I broke the tawbah and I did that sin. So for that person who's in that particular state, that they're finding themselves in sin, then they cry at night, they make tawbah over that sin, they last two, three, four, five, ten, twenty days, and they do the sin again, then they cry at night. So for that person who finds himself in that state, I have no problem saying that the dua of Hassan al-Basri is abzal for them, then the dua mentioned in hadith, because Sayyidina Rasulullah Sassam would most likely say the same thing, because for him the maqsad was using the dua as a means to get to tawbah. 
And these words more closely map the emotional state that that person is in. Whereas these words map the emotional state that Paul Solomon is in. This is the destination. But this is where he's at. So using this may be better for him at this moment. I have no problem saying that at moments it would be like that. There may be some great oliyah that for them this is better. Right? And actually in our own line of the Sawaf, mentioned that after the beginning stage when a salik, a student of the Sawaf, has reached a certain level, then the more absal for him is the work of the Anbiya to do khidmat of deen, the deed of sunnah, ahya sunnah. In fact, he writes in one of his letters, that's really something that should be studied and then that's after when we're done with this whole Ghazali round now. Next round is going to be Muqtubat of Imam Rabbani He writes in his letters that those who revive the Sharia and Sunnah, they are infinitely better than the Sufis. Right? But there may be a person in a particular state that for him he needs to be Sufi to get himself out of sin. He's not ready to revive the Sunnah and Sharia. Or if he starts doing it, I'll also show you this, if he starts doing it, he may be able to benefit others, but he's going to hurt himself. Because when you revive sin and Shri with others without having taken yourself out of sin, you may be able to help others, but you're harming yourself. You're actually harming yourself. Harming yourself. Yes, can you take the question for the women? May I ask a short question? Yeah. Has the Maktubat of Sheikh Sadindi been translated? It has been translated, but not in entirety. There have been selections of it translated by two, three different people in English. Uh, it's been translated entirely from Persian into Urdu and entirely into Arabic. And I was unclear whether the Arabic was translated from the Persian into Arabic or from the Urdu into Arabic. I don't know that. All right. Okay. Just see if I can combine them. Okay, now, okay, they're quite different questions, so to take them separately. All right. Number one, I mean, the first one that I open. Question, when we make dhikr, does it have to be a fixed ritual, or may we simply, and the person that's put in quotes here, speak to Allah and praise Him in our own words? Yes. You may simply, quote-unquote, speak to Allah and praise Him in your own words. That would count as dhikr. You can do dhikr in any way that you want, as long as it's not against sharia. That is an option if you wish to be trained in a particular method of zikr, right? The, let me suggest to you, let me also share with you why is it that people seem to suggest that that option is preferable. So I'll go back to the example of tajweed. Whenever a person studies tajweed, what do they do? They take a book. People who are from the subcontinent normally study Nurani Qaeda or Ikra Qaeda. People who are from the Arab world study, for example, Jazariya or some other famous book. There are a few books that have become very, gain widespread currency. What is that? That is called a nisab. That's a curriculum of tajweed. Who made that book? Mahirin, experts of that curriculum. Who's going to teach that book? An expert of that field. So people normally, if, I, if somebody said to me that is it necessary to read Nurani Qaeda or Jazariya and have a Qarisab to do tajweed? I say necessary? No. You could, do, you could learn tajweed however you want. But the empirical experience of the ummah is to learn tajweed through a laid out step-by-step curriculum that has been designed by masters of Tajweed and secondly to study that curriculum under a living master of Tajweed has proven to be far more efficacious and beneficial in learning Tajweed but could you do Tajweed any old way you want? Yeah, as long as you get to the goal because the asal is the goal Yeah, sure, why not? So we say the same thing with Zikr right? You can remember Allah any way you want right? 
But it may be possible, I would just suggest to you to entertain that possibility, that the masters of this field, the effort that they put in based on the experience and their knowledge in designing curricula of zikr, to study one such curriculum under a living master of that or a living instructor of that, maybe that may be more beneficial. There's no harm in trying that also, and there's no harm in doing zikr on your own in any particular way. All right? Second question is... Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, sorry, I've been asked to not read out the question. Um, okay. Let's see if I can combine this so that we can even make it more unknown. I've got three questions. I'm going to sort of combine two of them and then take one separately. The ones that are combining is that how does one practice this kiya, right? And what, you know, how can we do this at a practical level? Because sometimes people find different problems. One problem a person will find when they're trying to do this alone, just like you find when you study, is laziness, right? And you find that many times, just like in your academics, for many, but not all of us, mashallah, but some of us, right? That whenever we find, <laughs> whenever we find, uh, I'm teasing them too much. Huh? It's, uh, uh. So, no, we're happy actually. It's our happiness. May Allah Ta'ala be happy with you. So, many times we want to do things, we're unable to do them. That's true for everybody, in every sphere of life. There's things that you genuinely want to do, and you're equally genuinely unable to do them <laughs> on your own. That's why you need to put yourself, you need to plug yourself into a program. You need to connect yourself to a movement. This is my view. That it's more beneficial for you. It's easier for you. If you can't study well, you need to go sit in the library. Right? You need to make a study group. This Another problem sometimes people have is family. Sometimes when people worship, there's a certain hayal that, okay, you kind of don't want to worship in front of people because so many people are around. I share a room with so-and-so, right? Or people around, or I come to the prayer room and I start doing my zikr in the prayer room. So X is going to walk in and say, oh, you become a big Sufi. So I just want to do it privately. But of course, in my college, oh my God, the type of things that go on over there. Right? So it's not well, maybe an ideal conducive environment for zikr. Or fam- sometimes for people it may be their own parents. Sometimes it's their spouse. There can be a whole host of reasons, right? And so, you know, this is why I found that actually the zikr that Armashak taught is zikr of the heart. It's very helpful in this way. Because that's a silent secret zikr. Well, nobody knows that you're doing it. You can do zikr of the heart while at home, while with friends, while with family. But, you know, if a person feels awkwardness, you know, it really depends. If it's an awkwardness and a shyness that comes from your own worry of seeming ostentatious, you have to fight that. Shaykh al-Shaykh al Allah made this very clear, that this is actually whispering from shaitan. That shaitan makes you think that the reason you're doing it is to show off. And he makes you feel as if you're aware of others. Where actually you were just doing it to please Allah. You just wanted to do zikr to remember Allah. So if it's that, you need to kind of fight your awkwardness. That's also majahid of the nafs. One of the majahid of the nafs is to fix those things in our tabiyyat that gives us hesitation in zikr. But if it's not that, it's like that, no, it's actually that the people around me are going to be upset if I do zikr. Or they're going to, you know, it's going to cause a problem for me or my mom's going to flip out and say, you know, first you start a job, now you're sitting on the masala. Oh, what's the matter with you, right? Uh, so in that case, yeah, it's unfortunate, but you may be, find yourself in a situation where you may actually have to sort of surreptitiously do zikr. 
or do zikr in the middle of the depths of the night or when no one's around or when nobody notices so that the people around you um, don't feel it. So it depends uh, really on that notion of shyness. And the last question for today, uh, inshallah, and then we'll, I think in two minutes it's time for adhan, right? Khair uh, after Maghrib, then we can, I, I, I'm, I'm, we traveled three and a half hours to come to you. So <laughs> we're happy to sit with you. Uh, from our Griptish, uh, however long you want, inshallah. But last question before we break for Salah. Um, okay, how necessary is it to have a sheikh? Basically, that's what the question is. You know, the word necessary in English, we normally, when we translate that in our mind in Arabic, we think farth. So it's not farth to have a sheikh, it's not wajib to have a sheikh. It's sunnah. It's sunnah. Actually, it's sunnah. I won't even call it nefilah. I'm actually bold enough to call it sunnah. Right? But it's not one of the required sunnahs. It's one of the sunnahs that if you don't do them, it's, it's, it won't be sin. There are two types of sunnahs, very simply. One type of sunnah that if you don't do it, you incur sin. And there's another type of sunnah that if you don't do it, there won't be any sin. Like imama, wearing the turban. If I don't wear a turban, there's no sin. Zero sin. I get zero sin if I don't wear it. Right? So that's what I call sort of a non-obligatory type of sunnah. There are other sunnahs that are obligatory. This one is obligatory. That's another topic. We won't do that for you on the first trip. <laughs> one example, maybe. Huh? <laughs> no, is that too many? <laughs> we'll tell the boys. We'll tell the boys after prayer, inshallah. <laughs> yes, all right. Uh, so, it's not necessary, but like I, you know, I'm suggesting to you, and really from my own experience, it's beneficial. You know, commonly, but it's so used that it's become a bit cliche. But call people love to give the example of being a doctor. That isn't necessary to go to medical school to become a doctor. Couldn't I read the books on my own? I leave it for the medical school students to answer that question, right? I can tell you in my own field, no, right? I can tell you no. If you say I want to become a talib, a student of Islam, can I do it on my own? I have the books, I'll say no, you can't. You can't do that. Not unless you have teachers, not unless you have colleagues, not unless you're in an environment, not unless if there's formal learning. So the formalization of learning is something that we accept in every sphere of our life. Why is it that we're hesitant about it when it comes to our deen? And then some of us accept it in every other area of the deen. Why are we hesitant about it when it comes to zikr? We accept formalized learning of tajweed. We accept formalized learning of tafsir, of hadith, of fiqh, of usul, of aqidah, of marriage. <laughs> Why is zikr the only thing that we don't accept formalized learning in? The same benefits that you see in having formal learning programs and all of the other things, you will see the same benefits over here. But is it necessary? No. The last question that we were given, uh, it was part B of this question, was that how do you choose a sheikh? You choose a sheikh in a number of ways. It's a very personal choice. It's a very personal choice. Even Mashaik of Tasawf have written about this. Number one thing they will say that you must find a sheikh who follows the Qur'an, Sunnah, and Sharia. So first response, people like you will have a lie. I myself don't have ilm. How can I assess somebody whether they follow Qur'an and Sunnah when I myself don't have the ilm of that? So for that is to look at the ulama. Who are the mashaykh that the ulama respect, the ulama invite, right? That's a sign that the ulama know the Qur'an and Sunnah. If they accept this person, that's a sign, okay, at least there's no Sharia problem there. Second is that the shaykh should not be Leading a cult following, cult movement, have love for the world, love of status, love of celebrity. Right? Sheikh shouldn't be like that. Third, 
is that when you... Now, this is something that you can do more easily. It's more personable level. Third, okay, before I do the personal one, third is that the sheikh himself must have been the student of a sheikh. Who must have been the student of a sheikh? There must be sanat. Like classically in hadith, you studied Bukhari only from somebody who had sanat. Alhamdulillah, we studied Bukhari from two muhaddith who themselves studied Bukhari from muhaddithin who themselves studied Bukhari from etc. Back to Imam Bukhari whose own sanat for every hadith is written in his text. So the sheikh must fall in a line of continuous and unbroken chain of transmission of teacher-student relationship back to Sayyidina Rasulullah And fourth, which is the more personal one, is fourth and fifth, which are the two more personal ones, is number four, is that when you sit with that shaykh or you listen to the words of the shaykh, your heart should feel more love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Your heart should feel inclined towards the deen. And it should have some effect. Different people take different benefit in different ways. Some people sit by, sit by the fire and they get warm, but only while they stay by the fire. Some people, when they leave the fire, they stay a bit warm. Some people actually take a piece of the fire with them. Some people light up their fire. Some people actually can go and light other people's fire after having sat with the fire. So everybody will benefit differently. But that you feel some effect, some effect, some desire that I also want to have yakin and iman. I also want to be a person of taqwa. I also want to leave outward sin. I also want to leave wanting sin. If that is the effect it has on you, that's a good sign. And the fifth and final thing is what we call accessibility and compatibility. The shaykh should be someone who you should be able to have access to and that you're compatible with. Which means he has to understand. He has to understand you, your context, your setting, your situation. You know, I remember I got, I give an example for university students. We got a query once from our students that they had gone to two med schools in America. One was a little bit lower ranked than the other, right? But the one that was lower ranked was in a very strong city with a strong Muslim community. And the one that was a better, rank, better ranked was like, in a, you know, one of their out there places in America with not such a strong community. And they wanted advice. And this sort of opens up another question. This is advice. You're not required to follow it. But they wanted to do mushawara, right? Now, if I didn't know that person, I need to know that person, know how strong is their iman? Is this a person who can survive without having a strong community? Is this a person whose survival depends on having a strong community? I have to know that person spiritually to be able to answer this question, right? I have to know what it means to study in a med school to understand this question. I need to understand what it means to live in those two places in America to understand this question. So you need accessibility and compatibility, right? Now there's a great Gari in Egypt, but I can't learn Quran from him, right? Because I'm not in Egypt. It's an accessibility issue. Or maybe somebody would say there's a great Russian Gari, but you don't speak Russian. Right? So accessibility and compatibility this is the final thing. So these are five criteria that I mentioned on which on which basis a person tries to find shaykh. Right? Uh, and also I think you should be comfortable with the type of zikr. You should be comfortable with the type of zikr that the shaykh teaches. That's why we're very, very open about the zikr that our mashaykh teaches so that a person should know beforehand. Many times university students, again, they get on this trend and they start joining a group Next thing they know, they find this group does some type of group movement zikr, and they're uncomfortable with the group movement zikr. Then they get into this whole crisis that is okay to leave the shaykh. Oh, yeah. You know, am I going to go and get into Michigan? You know, am I going to wake up on the South Pole tomorrow morning? Because I left the shaykh. I said, no, you won't wake up on the South Pole tomorrow morning if you leave the shaykh because you didn't find the method of zikr was compatible. You should have looked at it beforehand. Just like when you get married, you should assess compatibility beforehand. Not to suggest that it's necessarily analogous, but you should look at compatibility beforehand. Right?
So our Mishnah, and then this will really be the last thing I end on because we really run out of time. I'll open it because I said I need to tell you and I didn't do that. And I told you I, we do everything openly. So I wanted to do this last thing for you. Our Mishnah teaches to do five zikr a day. So openly tell you. You don't even have to be bad to do them. It's not a condition to do zikr. I can tell you you can do them. Nobody has, You don't have to be bad to do them. Yeah, you may have to register yourself to be formally tutored and continually guided on them, but to do them, they're very simple. Number one is to allow it to Quran. To have a daily practice of recitation of the Arabic Quran. Ilm, knowledge of Quran, comes from studying tarjuma and tafsir under an alam of Quran. And the zikr aspect of the hidayah of Quran comes from tilawat of the Arabic Quran. If you can read for students, we recommend if you can read half a juz a day. If you can start off with that, wonderful. If you can't start with that, you need to work your way up to that. Start with quarter juz. Start with three rukus. Even in the days you're extremely busy, finals week, read one ruku. If nothing else, take the Qur'an off your shelf, clasp it to your chest and put it back. You must have daily contact with Qur'an al-Kareem. Inshallah, once you start doing that, you won't be able to not open it. <laughs> and we don't even touch it. Allah Akbar. <laughs> and that's why we don't open it. We don't read it because we don't open it. We don't open it because we don't touch it. We don't touch it because we don't even look at it. That's us in Qur'an. Allah Akbar. Understanding and feeling, it's a separate thing. So number one, daily tilawah to the Qur'an. Number two, daily istighfar. Sunnah Amun, the Biyakhtin made istighfar 100 times a day. To 100 times, astaghfirullah rabbi min kulli dhanbi wa atubu I seek the forgiveness of Allah, my Rabb, from all my sins and I turn into tawbah to Him. And don't think about your individual sins because most of you are not ready for that. Most of you have a nafs such that if you start remembering sin, the nafs gets excited again. So don't think about sin. Just make istighfar over the sinful feelings and stuff. I told you, stop wanting it. Make istighfar, I want this lust out. I want this hasad out. I just want it out. Forget about the acts. Worry about the feelings that led to those acts and read istighfar over those feelings. Got it? That's the feeling to feel when you recite those words. Number three out of five is daily dirud salawat. hundred times a day to recite salawat in Nabiya Kareem sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Allahumma salli ala sinuna Muhammad. وَعَلَىٰ آلِسِيدُنَا مُحَمَّدٍ وَبَارِكُ وَسَلَّمٍ What should you feel? The way you feel, and this is what we explained, it's the idiomatic English translation of this, not the translation of it. A hundred times a day you should remind yourself that He is my Nabi, I am His Ummati. I'm not an ordinary person. I'm the follower of a Prophet. I'm not just a follower of a Prophet, I'm a follower of the Prophet. So I should try to make myself the follower of the Prophet. I should try to make myself Siddiq. What am I doing here? What am I doing in life? I'm his follower. Right? A woman should feel like this. She says, look, I'm the follower. She should tell the guy. That what makes you think you can chat me up? <laughs> I'm not an ordinary girl. What makes you think I'm going to reply to your SMS? I'm not. An, I'm that nubby's follower. You mistook me for somebody else. I'm sorry. I'm not an ordinary person. I belong to a prophet. I have a sense of belonging. I have a sense of legacy. That's why you recite Dhruud and Salawat. Not some Sufi chanting practice. It's supposed to have feeling to bring you closer to the Sunnah of Nabi Akram Sallallahu Not some, you know, superficial chant. People have really, really, really distorted this Amul of Dhruud and Salawat. Really distorted it. Got that? hundred times a day? Three things are done. Tilawat, Istighfar, and Dhruud and Salawat. Number four. That's what I was saying, a silent zikr of the heart. Right? And this is about 80% from Quran, and the last 20% of seal has been crystallized by the Mishnah. That is to sit down 
and close your eyes and remember Allah Ta'ala in your heart. Spiritual it's not meditation. Because here what you're trying to do is to cut your awareness off. Allah Ta'ala says in Quran, وَذْكُرْ isma Rabbik And do zikr of the name of your Rabb. And the name of our Rabb is Allah. Isma Azim, Isma Jalala. وَتَبَتَّلْ إِلَيْهِ tabtila. And become unaware of everything else and become exclusively aware of Him. So your breathing is also Khairullah. I'm just showing this is our method of zikr, right? Breathing is Khairullah. So unaware of that. Your heartbeat is Khairullah. Unaware of that. Pulse is Khairullah. Unaware of that. You close your eyes because this world is Khairullah. You're trying to make yourself unaware of that. And all of neuroscience and psychology and marketing will tell you visual perception is the most uh, thing that infiltrates your mind. That's why you close your eyes. Some meditation. Some meditation. In Arabic it's called muraqaba, muraqaba. To cut yourself off from everything in the world and to try to connect yourself to your qalb, your spiritual heart, and to connect your qalb to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by imagining that your qalb, your heart, is making dua, is saying over and over again, Allah, Allah, Allah is making dhikr of Allah's name. And you're just listening to it. That's it. And to do this for 10, 15, 20 minutes a day. All right? And the fifth thing is actually what we said that our Mashaikh says, what we call dhikr kathir or called in Arabic wakufa kalbi, to think about Allah 24 hours a day in any way that you can. That may mean doing any act in accordance with Sharia, any act in accordance with the Sunnah, any act of ibadah, or when you're studying or teaching or walking or cooking or playing with your kids or whatever, in the background, on the bottom of your heart, part of you should still be thinking about Allah. For example, some of you right now are partly thinking where you have to go where you have to be, but you're also listening to me. <laughs> right? So Allah subhanahu gave us that ability to do two things at once, so that when we're engaged in the world, we can still remember Him. Allah says in Quran, and tell me what this dhikr is, That they are such men, real human beings, that neither trade or commerce, it's kanaya, no worldly engagement, no worldly occupation, distracts them from the zikr of Allah. Here in Quran, the word zikr cannot mean salah, cannot mean talawa, cannot mean any type of ibadah. Because Allah is saying they're engaged in trade and commerce. They're buying and selling. Their tongue is busy in bargaining, negotiating, haggling. They're not doing any ibadah. But they're not distracted one iota from the zikr of Allah. This is the zikr of the heart. These ayat have been hidden from you, you know. And this is a problem when we, you know, study deen without knowing Quran. It's a big problem in the modern Muslim world. And basically everybody just knows what kind of whatever halakha or lecture they went to. And then as they keep going and as they keep listening to the same person, then they understand all of deen through that prison. <laughs> you won't know this ayah in Quran. What are you going to do with that word zikr? So the fifth thing is to be like that. We're the opposite. Well, there's no ibadah that can bring us to the zikr of Allah. We go into sajda, even then we don't feel Allah. And Quran is describing these human beings as in their height of the worldly engagement and occupation, they weren't distracted one drop from the zikr of Allah. So this is the fifth amal, and that's 24 hours a day to practice zikr. So here on our website, islamicspirituality.org.org, we've explained these things more in detail. You're all welcome to try any and all of these zikr, and you're all welcome to contact us on the website if you ever want to learn more. All right? Inshallah, we'll, I think, pray salah first, and then after salah, we'll make dua. Sure.